Either Schwitzer. Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, isn't that the greatest introduction to any money program in the history of money programs? I'm Peter Switzer, and of course, my great friend Dave Gibson put that little intro together along with our producers, and it's a fantastic way to kick off our first podcast out there to the world. I'm Peter Switzer, as I've already said, and I've got my colleague Paul Rickard here. Paul, how are you? Good afternoon, Peter. I'm great. Thank you for the uh, very warm welcome. No, great way to kick off the show with... Uh, I think some tremendous work by our very talented production team. Exactly right. And look, let's face it, there's no reason why money should be boring. Why, why shouldn't you have exciting introductions like that? When you think about it, just about everything that's ex- exciting outside of some things I, I really can't mention here on air is always linked to money. Money is an excitement um, means for all enjoyment in life. Well, or it, just about all enjoyment in life. Yeah, not... Just about everything. But look, it does make the world go round, and I, it's very hard to have a lot of fun without some money. So <laughs> exactly. if we can help you make some money or at least manage that uh, wealth, maybe build wealth, maybe even uh, develop wealth, mm. uh, then I'm sure we'll, we'll have a go. That's what Well, that's exactly for. what we're here for. Yeah. So this is a program that will make you richer, smarter, wiser, and will help you build your wealth. It will, and we're certainly happy to take any of your calls. I don't know what number you ring, but there must be a number people can ring in on, Peter. I thought, yeah, I was here for the hired help to provide the expert comments, <laughs> but I'm also do the. Uh, I'll keep the program moving, will I? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm so gobsmacked that we actually don't have a phone number here. But of course, if you go to switzer.com.au, there's a phone number there. I'm but, sure by the time this program is yeah, over, we'll have the phone number. Precisely. By the time we get to our next ad break, that number. I'll be able to say that number again, which won't be again because I haven't actually said it before, but we will get to that. Paul, without any further ado, let's just quickly talk about the markets because I thought our market would be down today, and I know you reckon that I'm, I must have been drinking well, look, I wrote I the read, Switzer Report I read Saturday. your words of wisdom on the Switzer, Super report, on, Switzer report on Saturday, yeah. obviously where you were commenting on the uh, what happened in the United States, which is a fairly negative night on, 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 on Friday in, in response to – President T's latest trade tantrum, you know? <laughs> yes. He's tweeting tantrum, tariffs, whatever. But uh, I didn't think we'd be off too badly today because a lot of that was priced into our market on Friday. And in fact, notwithstanding that uh, he came up with the announcement about 9am Sydney time on, uh, on Friday morning, our market did rather well on Friday. And so to see... Our future's only off a little bit offshore. And then to see where the market actually finished, it's actually finished up today, Peter, up mm. uh, 23.4 points, which is not bad given what's happened in yeah. the last... Explain to our listeners uh, about this, the futures exchange. It was telling us down 33 points at the open. So that, that, in a sense, was a fairly negative start, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and we did start that way. And so there is, of course, uh, a futures market, and that's where look, pretty hard for you or I to access, Peter, but professionals, I won't say they big investors. Bet, but big investors, mm. they, they hedge their positions. And that futures market trades at the same time that 
uh, Wall Street is trading. And so you, you can get a sense of where the futures market closed, yep. which it closed at about 6 a.m. Sydney time on Saturday morning, the same time as Wall Street stopped trading. As to where, if, if, if they've taken the price down, then mm. you would expect our market on Monday morning, all things being equal, to start off at about the same level. Yep. That's what it did. Not, a, not, not quite that level. It's only opened about down about 20 points. But we've been pretty much in a steady recovery all day. Mm. And so we've finished up 0.4%, which does tell you, I suppose, a little bit of underlying strength in the Australian mm. market. But, Paul, do you also think that you know, Trump did put out another tweet where he basically said, I love the Chinese, they love me, and this is just basically a little battle over intellectual property, and I'm sure we'll sort the whole thing out. That was the basic, the substance of his tweet, wasn't it? And you think the market is starting to see this for what it is, that's not as much as he wants a massive trade war with China, but that he actually wants uh, something like a, a negotiated deal, and everyone will, in the end, smile and drink cups of tea together uh, and, and the market I, will go up. And I think that's what people are starting to realise. The other sort of clue he gave there was he was talking about the World Trade Organization. Hmm. And I think China still gets treated as a as a developing nation and in the World Trade Organization that, that you have different preferences depending whether you're you know, a developed nation like the United States or America or you're a developing nation like India or China or right. some of the other countries. Mm. And he's saying it's grossly unfair that China's still considered to be a developing nation when it uh, you know, the trade imbalance between China and the U.S. is pretty big. Mm. As we showed on, on an trade report the other day, uh, China exports something like about $550 billion in, into the United States and only imports about $130 billion. So it's, it's all pretty much one way, mm. China exporting into the United States. And so I think he's trying to say, well, let's, the World Trade Organization needs to treat China a bit differently It'll lose some of the potential subsidies it gets, and so that'll make life a bit fairer. I, I'm with you, Peter. I don't think he wants an all-out war. I just mm. think he wants to he wants to make America great again and uh, <laughs> yes. have a couple of wins. But the thing is, is Paul, at the best, our stock market has got to about 6,121. But ever since he started talking tariffs, we've dropped. We've dropped about, I think, 6% since a high, probably 5% since he really started getting serious about tariffs. So the stock market is a bit spooked about the potential of a trade war. If they were really scared, do you think the market would be down 10%? Yeah, I mean, and our market has underperformed the rest of the world over this calendar in 2018. Mm. And so I think what you're seeing is that we got down to a low of about 5,750 in the market, saying that's sort of like the buy level. Yeah. And that's why we've we've come up notwithstanding some of the the trade tantrums over the last 72 hours. Mm. I think most people like you and I, Peter, are betting that this is going to be um, resolved in due course. Yeah. But, you know, that's I suppose, produces its own sort of risk. The case is it does yeah. turn into something a lot worse. But I don't think there's – I don't think we should be reaching to the panic button just yet. Okay. Quickly today on the Switzer uh, investment report, I talked about – how the top 20 stocks have been beaten up for quite some time. And if this market does rebound, well, they could be the ones that really do very well. Um, but it might take some time. Do you, is I, you think it's look, a fair call, I think Paul? that's a fair call. And it's often the way, because the top 20 stocks have the best liquidity, yeah. they tend to go down as hard and they go up the quickest. Mm. Uh, because when people want to buy, they don't buy the rubbish, they buy 
you know, when people are looking for the, the quality rebound, companies. they borrow the quality companies first. So mm. it, although we, in some cases, they uh, we talk about volatility and there are some stocks that are always going to be more volatile than others, the top 20 actually go as hard when the market is falling, but they come back the quickest. Mm. And I think that's what you've seen today. So I think that is a reasonable call. And, and in yeah. times of weakness, it's, it, that's the time to really look at the, yeah. at the, best, at the leading stocks. Okay, well, let's um, hope that we're both right. And uh, it's time for our first ad break, Paul. So let's go to ad break right now. And now, a word from our sponsors. With interest rates eventually heading up, if you think you'd like to lock in a low rate of interest, think about the Switzer Fixed Interest Rate Home Loan. Our rate is 4.17% for three years, which could give you peace of mind when rates start to rise. If you prefer a variable rate... Take a look at our 3.89% loan. Because there are no hidden fees, the comparison rate is also 3.89%. Interested? Then call Switzer Home Loans on 1300 664 339 and have a chat to one of our lenders. That's 1300 664 339. Well, Paul, you haven't heard a live red ad for a long, long time, have you? <laughs> no, and often they come back with a little bit of a sting, and uh, the, the host would learn perhaps not to overreach. <laughs> well, I'm, over, I'm, I'm just learning on the job here. Our producers are doing a fantastic they job. Aren't I, they? I think that the, uh, the, uh, the, the talent we've developed and shown, that ad was red developed so creatively. <laughs> okay, so. Well, I am the, the, I guess you might call the work experience host here, but you know, I have been given um, very good instructions that Margaret Lomas, our princess of property, is on the line. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, Margaret, I'm really glad to have you here on our inaugural podcast. And uh, for those people out there who've never had the benefit of being in the company of the princess of property... You can't hear anything. That's that's not good. No, I can't hear anything. Okay, radio. So we're going. What we're going to do, Paul, is until Margaret can hear something, mm-hmm. let's we'll just meandering on about the market. That's right. Well, I, I guess the most important point that we actually should make now now is wh- why are we talking to Margaret Lomas? Well, property is under a bit of uh, a challenge at the moment. Um, we're starting to see that uh, house prices are starting to come off the boil. Do you think this is the start of something very bad for the real estate market? Look, I don't. I think there's a couple of other things that uh, could come into the real estate market, not in the next few months, but certainly play out over the next 12 months. Uh, and these are both sort of a little bit of in the unknown territory. Uh, one is that if you look at some of the stuff going on at the Royal Commission, I, I, I increasingly don't think this is actually going to be too bad for the major banks. But I do think there's going to be a lot of other parts of the financial institution area or financial institutions caught up in this. So we, we know that in the first couple of weeks of hearings, a lot of pressure on mortgage brokers. And mm-hmm. so we're probably going to see out of that, you're guessing, some sort of change around mortgage broking arrangements. But also there's a lot of talk and um, discussion around sort of the responsible lender test. In other words, the obligations that... Uh, Lenders such as banks and building societies and credit unions have to really to make sure that you, Peter Switzer, are really cut out to take on that loan. Mm. Words, we've got to make sure it's in your interest to take to, 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 before we can lend you that money. Mm. And the discussion has been that sort of the banks have been taking some of that responsibility a bit lightly. In other words, they haven't really understood the borrower's wealth and their income and been relying on 
estimates of, of expenses rather than actually sort of get delving into the nitty gritty of how much you actually spend each week on of your household in, of your income on living expenses and what you've got left over to pay as interest. Yeah. And I think this is this sort of where that's heading is we 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 risk sort of coming in a situation where the Royal Commissioner recommends a real tightening of lending standards. And that may have rather a negative impact on the property market because it could be almost like a sort of a mini credit squeeze as, as as customers find it very difficult to get finance. Now I'm not trying to exaggerate the impact of this because it's a long way to play out, yeah. but I think there are some other factors outside property prices and the share market and interest rates that could yet have quite a bit of influence on the property market over the next 12 to 18 months. It'd be really interesting to hear what Margaret, who's a lot closer to this part of the market than I am, what she's got to say about that. Yeah, and I guess, Paul, is this Royal Commission saying that mortgage brokers have been gilding the lily about the qualifications of a borrower to get a loan and the banks have not been trying to de-gild the lily in many ways, that they're, they're accessories, they want to go along for the ride because a loan written helps their bottom line? Look, I think that's part of it, Peter. I think it's sort of also don't ask what you don't want to know. Mm. Um, and so although the banks under APRA have have, uh, have done much to improve their credit standards, I think that you're right that over many years, I'd say the brokers have necessarily gilded the, the lily, but the banks haven't wanted to know too much, and so the brokers haven't asked the questions, haven't produced the verification. Mm. The banks have said, okay, as long as our loan book is growing and we're not seeing too many problems, you know, in, in arrears, that's okay. But as soon as sort of you might have uh, you know, a royal commissioner making a recommendation to government and possible sort of, if not legislation, regulations coming in that say you've got to get X and Y from a borrower, it could be a really difficult thing. Yeah, but Paul, do you reckon that you know the the, the true um, accessory before the fact is actually the borrower? Because it's the borrower who really wants the money. Yeah. And I I've got to say I, I can't see any objective evidence saying that the borrowers out there are screaming that they're being ripped off by mortgage brokers. It seems to me that mortgage brokers often help them get a loan mm-hmm. when they can't get a loan from a bank. And if they do get a loan from a mortgage broker, they invariably get a lower interest rate. And even though people seem to be complaining about the, the trail and the commission they get, as long as me, the borrower, gets a lower rate of interest, what am I whinging about? And, and we're not seeing arrears in the banks. It's not like silly loans and everyone's, you know, Losing, losing their loans and the banks are being put under pressure. Am I missing something? No, you're not missing much, Peter, because uh, bank arrears, certainly all the data on uh, mortgage arrears show that they're at very low levels. So yeah. it's not as though there's been some big crisis out there that we've suddenly found. Hmm. Look, there have been, as, as you know, there have been uh, surveys and some of the analysts have been pushing this thing called liar loans. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the banks have sort of compensated. That's liar, liar <laughs> stories, I <laughs> <Yeah>. reckon. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it does uh, tend to get blown up. But you know what it's like, Peter, when you have a commission and people come forward and make claims mm. and you have lawyers who are doing the investigation and they're looking very strictly at a piece of legislation that says you should be doing X and yeah. You're not doing X. In fact, you're doing Y, and Y doesn't equal X. Mm. Um, this is what we risk. And I guess it's partly that if you have a Royal Commission, it's got to find something <laughs> and make some <laughs> sort of recommendations. And yeah. I think this is an area where clearly there seems to be some renewed focus. So, okay. So well, there's a rough chance that our technological champions have actually connected us to Margaret Lamo. So let's give it another go. Margaret, can you hear me? 
Well, I can hear you. You do sound like you're in the next building. So if you just speak nice and loudly, oh, I okay. think we might be able to communicate. Okay. Well, how about I use my deepest modulated Cause, cause voice? Margaret, you're coming through no. very clear to us. I can I can actually hear Paul better than you, Peter, and I think it's because you've got that sexy, sultry, Ooh. dulcet tone. Now, that's just so why I, I have you on the show, saying things like that. <laughs> So maybe speak it in a higher voice if you can. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, Margaret, my question to you is, you know, a lot of people have heard and seen you either on TV or heard you on radio, and I'd like to know, where did you come from? Like, how did you establish yourself as a princess of property? <laughs> well, you know, it's actually an interesting story, and I don't think you've got enough time left on this particular show to go through it all, but just in a nutshell... When I was living in Perth with my husband and we were, we had a young family of five children and, and we had a very uh, normal life like everybody else where we both had a full-time job and we were trying to make ends meet. And one of the things I used to do was after hours, I used to prepare resumes and application letters for people for, for jobs because I was good at that. And I actually ran a community-based service as well to help unemployed people find work. So it was a bit of extra work for me in the evenings. And one night, one of my clients said to me, I've got to rush home because I'm going to meet with a guy who's going to show me how to pay off my mortgage more quickly. And I said, oh, I want to know how to pay off my mortgage as well, give him my number. Anyway, so fast forward and the fellow came around and showed me that what was then a brand new system of getting a line of credit, using a credit card, you know, putting all of your money into your line of credit and using your credit card for your expenses and paying it back. And he said that they could help me to do this on my own mortgage and it would only cost me, I think at the time, $2,500 to get their help. Anyway, I decided that I could do it on my own, but I did say to them that I would like to help by showing other people how to do this and to help other people get ahead. And it wasn't long before that particular company, I wasn't overly happy working with them. I felt they were charging a lot of money and not giving a lot back. So Ruben, my husband and I decided that we could probably start up a similar thing on our own. And initially we were just helping people to pay off their mortgages early and budget better. But as we went along, we, we then, this is all back in Perth, we'd moved over to um, the East Coast. We wanted to be closer to my family. As we moved along um, on that pathway, we started to do really well by paying off our own mortgage. We had a lot of clients who we were helping with their budgeting and their financial counselling, I guess. And then we began to invest in property at a time when there really wasn't any help out there. There was one book written by Jan Summers, which was a good book, but did treat uh, investment property in more the physical sense than anything else. And so we basically were a bit like, you know, blindly going on and trying to invest in property. But we did buy a couple of good ones and started to learn a bit more about it and it wasn't long before our client said, you know, we want to do that too and we began helping them to buy investment property without selling it to them. So buying it from more of a financial planning approach than anything else and the rest of history grew from there. Okay, so it's interesting you started off in WA, which is the home of the mortgage broker because they really started out of that and they really grew right across the country. What's your view? Because the Royal Commission's kind of... And I've actually heard a, a former banker say to me that the banks seem to be throwing the mortgage brokers under the, under the bus. What's your view on mortgage brokers? Because obviously 
you know, your clients, you know, would use mortgage brokers or or, or people like that. Well, What's I am view? one. <laughs> well, you're a mortgage broker yourself. So have you been thrown under the yeah, bus as well? <laughs> well, look, we probably will get thrown under, under the bus with everybody else. But, you know, I would have to say that a lot of the times they should be thrown under the bus. And I've seen some horrible things in the industry where mortgage brokers carelessly, uh, like they, they seem to have no qualms about falsifying documents, about, you know, just getting people to sign a loan document and they'll fill it out later. And I've seen more than my fair share of falsified information. And it's horrifying. I mean, I, I like to think that my company doesn't engage in any of that. And of course, we, we don't. And we're very careful because when we get money for people from a bank, we want our clients not be under mortgage stress. We want them to afford their borrowing. And we, when we qualify a client, we actually, because we know everything there is to know about our clients, including what they earn and how they spend that money. So we make sure that we do a full analysis on their real expenses and whether they can afford the kind of money that the bank's likely to lend to them. But, you know, the bank has a lot to answer to uh, answer for as well because I have seen banks offer to my clients amounts of money that the client simply can't afford because the present lifestyle they need doesn't leave them enough money left over to afford that loan. Yeah, now, and Paul, I, I think, you know, the bank, banks are complicit as well. Yeah, Paul's got a question for you. Um, so, uh, Margaret, with uh, just go back to the Royal Commission and... Uh, one of the other things we were talking about, uh, and I don't know if you could hear us or not, is perhaps suggestions that really the, a lot of the lenders haven't been getting enough documentation from the borrowers, really to establish not just their income, but more their uh, their living expenses and look at the question, the issue about yeah. the service of the loan. Do you think of these sort of recommendations or the Royal Commission acts on that and sort of puts all these recommendations and says, banks, you're going to have to get a lot more documentation from potential borrowers are we sort of likely to face some sort of bit of a mini credit squeeze as sort of as finance gets really hard here? I think so. And the biggest problem when we get recommendations like this out of a Royal Commission is the overreaction that tends to happen. And I still remember the introduction of the Consumer Credit Code in 1998. And when that was introduced, the banks freaked out. And they and and everything went overboard with documentation. And of course, the Consumer Credit Code came about as a result of what at that time was probably irresponsible lending as well. The ANZ Bank was very implicated back then in having given big loans to people who couldn't afford them, and more importantly, hadn't explained to their clients the proper conditions around that lending, and particularly to clients at the time who were considered to be the most vulnerable in the community. So older people who have may, may have become guarantors on loans for their kids and then lost their own homes and been homeless. So we see a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. And while I do think that banks need to be more careful about how they lend, and they definitely need to have a better method of assessing the, the way people spend money, I think asking for documentation proof is going to be onerous and very labour-intensive, and I can't imagine how they'll do it. You know, I, I think possibly that if someone wants to come and borrow $750,000 and yet they're showing that at the moment by paying rent they're not saving any money 
then to me, that's an immediate tell that that client can't afford a $750,000 mortgage if, you know, the current smaller rent that they're paying, they're they're not saving money, there's no money left over. That would tell me that their expenses are probably a little out of control and they can't take on that big mortgage. And I think there's some simpler measures that banks could take to assess whether or not someone actually has the money left over every month to afford whatever size mortgage they're going for. Yep. Now, we've got a caller on the line, Margaret, so let's just keep our fingers crossed that technology serves us well. So go ahead, caller. Hi, Margaret. How are you? Um, I was just wondering okay, so I, I can hear you really well now, Peter, but I can't hear the caller. Home. What are the risks and okay. is it a smart idea? Okay, so the caller didn't go through and Margaret couldn't hear it. So we'll get the caller to repeat it and I'll pass it on to Margaret. Okay, so... How, Great. How, how can I access my super for a deposit on a home? Yeah. Uh, well, this is a tough question for Margaret, but at least Paul's here for this one. She, she wants to know, uh, uh, your view on this would be, be good. The government has made it possible for younger people, or anyone really, to access their super as it, for the, a deposit. Mm. What do you think of that idea? We'll get Paul to explain it to the call in a second, but what do you think of the idea? I'm nervous about this one because the biggest problem with young people and superannuation anyway is the disconnect they have and I guess this applies to everybody, between money and super and themselves. People frequently think that money and super isn't really theirs or they don't view it as their money until they start to get older and closer to the time that they need it. Um, You know, Peter, that I'm already not a fan of people accessing their self or setting up a self-managed super fund because when they do that, they generally take all the money out and invest in a property and they don't use the right way to buy property. So they end up with a single asset that that underperforms in their self-managed super fund, they can't leverage against it because you can only mortgage each property once and their end result is worse than it would have been had they stayed in that super fund that they felt was underperforming at the time. I'm worried with young people that if at an early age, let's call it before 30, they withdraw the small amount of money. So for starters, it's not a lot of money, but they withdraw that small amount of money that they've got to access that first home. There's nothing in super then. So straight away, they're not delaying the build-up of super by just those couple of years they've already put it in, put it put into it. It's a real um, compounding situation. They're waiting longer to begin again to compound it so they don't get as long in that super fund. And by the time they get to retirement, people already don't have enough money in super and they're really going to be underfunded in their super. And many of those people might buy a property and then sell it five years later to do their world trip thing or their backpacking and spend all the money on that. So it just worries me. Okay, before we um, leave the subject, the caller still would like to understand how it works. So why don't we put Paul under the, the pump to just basically explain for those younger people out there who are prepared to ignore Mar- Margaret's advice and just say how, how the whole system works. Yeah, so thanks, caller. Um, and Margaret, we'll come back to the benefits later. But th- this is, it's ca- called the uh, First Homeowners Super Saver Scheme. Uh, it allows you essentially to, uh, through salary sacrifice or salary sacrifice arrangements, to put up to $15,000 a year or $30,000 over two years into super. And then when you buy your first property, you can withdraw that up to $30,000 plus the earnings on that $30,000, which will be at a sort of a deemed rate. 
you'll be able to withdraw that uh, and use that as a deposit. It's 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 a it's a scheme that'll give you a, essentially allow you to save faster than if you put the money in a bank or a term deposit, and they've estimated to be about thirty percent more effective. So if you could, uh, if you had it compared to, as as towards putting that money in fifteen thousand a term deposit over a couple of years and then taking it back out for a deposit for your home through the super scheme, you'd actually be about 30% better off. So, And a couple could, could get, say, yeah. 60000 over two That's right. years so as a, as a, a start couple, A couple can put in it. It's, it's, so it's per person. So essentially you can get up to $60,000 plus earnings uh, as a couple. So, it's, look, it's a good way to save, and it's there just for the reason. Will it make a huge difference to you? Not a, No, it's not going to change the world. In many parts of Sydney or Melbourne, the deposit might be you know, 150000 potentially $200,000. So it's not going to solve that deposit gap, but it will allow you to save just a little bit quicker than if you're doing it outside mm. super. And I, I hear what you're saying, Margaret. I mean, the, one of the reasons I like this scheme is I think that connectedness is a real problem with mm. super, particularly for young people. Uh. And this is a way to make super just a little more relevant to um, people Ooh, in yeah. their sort of 20s and 30s. One thing I love about Margaret, Margaret Lomas is that she's a, a very modern woman, but sometimes she can be really old-fashioned, you know, safe and old-fashioned. <laughs> Look, I, I take your point, Paul, and I agree, but I think in so many other ways that this same outcome could have been achieved. I mean, when we look at um, essential service workers like nurses and um, people like that, people in the medical industry, they're allowed to salary sacrifice money into a mortgage repayment. And I think that kind of thing makes every dollar worth a lot more because it's pre-tax dollars that pay your mortgage and makes it more affordable for you in that in that regard. So you can get that you know slightly bigger mortgage, but it's going to essentially cost you less in real dollars. I just think there's a lot of other ways. When the first home saver accounts were around and never well enough advertised or well enough explained, mm. the government also contributed some money to that for every dollar that um, the person put in up to, I think it was up to 15000 The government would match that or up to 1500 a year over X amount of years. The government would match that as well. And I just think there were so many other ways that that could have been tackled without once again messing with the super system, which has already had... You know, how many, well, you'd know, 175 changes in the last 15 years or something. Yeah. Now, Margaret, we're going to keep you here. We're going to go to an ad break. Now, when we come back, I want to talk to you about, I want you to give advice to our listeners about the best way of going around, going about buying an investment property to make sure you don't end up with a dud. We'll be back in a moment. Will do. And now. A word from our sponsors. With interest rates eventually heading up, if you'd like to lock in a low rate, think about the Switzer fixed interest rate home loan. Our fixed rate is 4.17% for three years, which could give you peace of mind when rates start to rise. But if you prefer a variable interest rate home loan, take a look at our 3.89% loan. Because there are no hidden fees, the comparison rate is also 3.89%. Interested? Then call Switzer Home Loans on 1300 664 and have a chat to one of our lenders. That's 1300 
once again, a very cool ad and a great sting back to Margaret Lomas. Now, Margaret, let's kick off with the, the question I had with you because a lot of our people listening here are keen to be uh, property investors, but you always do warn people can make mistakes when they probably buy with their heart rather than their head. So let's sort out the heads of potential property investors. Okay. So I start. I want to start by talking about what you shouldn't be doing because I always think that's the thing that people need to hear first. Otherwise, they start to get too excited and they forget about what they shouldn't be doing. So what they shouldn't be doing when they become a property investor is, first of all, they shouldn't become what I call an accidental investor. And an accidental investor is someone who becomes an investor because someone has made them aware of an investment opportunity somewhere, and often that's a spruker. So you might get the telephone call at home that says, would you like to come to an investment seminar and learn how to retire wealthy? And generally, the spruikers of that kind of a thing will start out by trying to tell you how bad things are going to be for you in the future and make you feel terrible and then offer to offer you that that saving grace by coming to this investment seminar and learn all the secrets of the wealthy when in fact really what they're going to do is whack you at the end with a sales contract for a property that's probably really bad property to be buying in that benefits them a lot more than it benefits you. So don't decide to become an investor because you see a good what you think is a good investment. Decide to become an investor before all of that and then take the pathway toward becoming a good investor second thing that I'd like to warn people not to do is not to assume that where you live is the best place to invest. Sometimes it is, but mostly it's not. And where you live was probably a really good place to invest when you first bought there, but over time, as it grows and becomes more expensive and it has a relatively worse yield than it had when the prices were lower, it becomes less of a good investment. And once it becomes blue chip, as people talk about blue chip, then really its best investment years and most profitable investment years are actually behind it. Second, the third thing is don't follow the crowd or get FOMO. Um, and I think one of the big dangers, especially if you're just starting out, is that plenty of information out there on the net, plenty of magazines that you can read, websites you can go to where they talk about hotspots, and you go and invest in an area where three-quarters of the other investors in the country are also buying there because they've read that same magazine. So it's probably too late in those areas if you're reading about them. And if you think an area is going up to the point where you might miss out, then you should jump out because that FOMO or the fear of missing out might make you make mistakes and pay too much and buy at the tail end of a good boom when you're about to plateau for years and years. And the last thing you shouldn't do, of course, and Peter, you've already alluded to this, and that's you shouldn't get emotional about what you buy. Mm. Uh, you, you tell me all the time that you do get emotional about property and you love it, and that's normal for someone who's had some good results from property and lived in some beautiful properties. When you invest in a property, it's not the same thing. No, exactly right. And, and in many ways, one of your best tips is for, for younger people to look at the, the suburb that might be the, the next up-and-comer. And when we moved into Paddington in 1979, my father-in-law walked in and looked at his daughter and said, gee, you two have made a terrible mistake. Sell this place as quickly as you can. Uh, we've, recently exactly. we've, we've recently worked out what that place is now worth. It's had a, a compound growth of 9.6% 
if you ignore the renovations. If you put the renovations in, it's probably been about a 7.6% return. But we got lucky in the sense that we went to a crummy suburb called Paddington in those days and it became a, a blue chip over time. But if you, if you do make the, yeah. Yeah, if you do make the right decision early in your, in your days, over time, it really can be very rewarding. That's right. And at the time, you thought it was a crummy suburb and everybody thought it was a crummy suburb as well. Mm. And you say you got lucky, but these days you can use that same kind of theory to not just be lucky, but to plan how you buy property. Mm. So in order to do that, my four things that you should be doing start with do understand what drives growth and the relationship that those growth drivers have to each other. And so if you had have known those things, Peter, when you bought in Paddington, you probably would have been able to pick out all of the things about Paddington and tell your father-in-law, listen, mate, these are all of the really great things that are going to be happening tomorrow in Paddington and the justification for, for me buying there. And that's what I do every time I'm going to buy somewhere is I don't look at whether it's great now. I, I don't go for those suburbs that everybody wants to get in now. I go for the suburbs that look like that look like those suburbs and look like what those suburbs used to look like before. So I would go now and find a Paddington twenty years ago, but I'm not going to find it anywhere near Paddington. But hey, I'm going to find it somewhere probably in Brisbane or Melbourne or even out of Sydney that has those same growth drivers. So you do have to learn what drives growth. Of course, as you know, I've written a book about growth drivers and it's a really good one that really centers in on what makes property grow and sorts out that misconception people have. People think the wrong things make property grow, but it's not what you might think it is. The second thing is, before you do buy a property, and this applies as an investor or an owner-occupier, but it is particularly important as an investor, and that's to know your price limits as well. So you start out by working out what you can afford comfortably, including if it has a period of vacancy. So you've got to really think about that. I've seen more than my fair share of forced sales from people who didn't think about that vacancy period and can't support the mortgage when suddenly someone moves out and they're left six weeks unable to get a new tenant. Mind you, if you understand what drives growth, that probably won't happen to you because you buy the right property. But you still need to know that. And once you do know your price limits, make sure that you buy according to the area that you find that is best, not the one that matches that price limit. So let me explain that a little bit further. You might work out that you can afford to spend $300,000 on an investment property. Now, if there are no areas with growth drivers that are in the $300,000 price range, then that means you're not ready to buy yet and you've got to wait until you can pay whatever is required to pay to get into the area with growth drivers. Because what's worse um, than buying a property than not buying a property at all is buying a property in an area that never grows. There's no point to that. Mm. You know, I've seen people buy properties in far-flung country towns for 150, and they brag about how they only paid 150 and they get 250 a week rent and what a great cash flow it is. Well, that's fine, but in 10 years' time, if it's still only worth 150,000, you haven't added to your net worth. Yeah. And it also doesn't do its job in your portfolio. Every property job is to grow, create equity, so you can leverage against that equity to buy more property. 
All right, now, Margaret, we've been giving the, the, the wind-up sign. Can we, start, uh-huh. can we start next week with the remaining two things that you should do? And we'll recap on what you've said yes. so far. Well, that'd be fantastic. Yes, we can. Yeah. And, as, yeah. Yeah, and as you know, I've got a thousand different topics we can talk about, so yeah. let's get through some of those as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you also determine what you think are the, the vital topics that we should be covering because I do want to make our listeners great property investors and you're the best person to do that. I can do that. <laughs> okay, so that's Margaret Lomas from destiny.com.au. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you next week when we get together for another version of The Switzer Show.